Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Mike Davis. And I'm Libby Denkman. We are co-hosting Week in Review today while Bill Radke is on vacation. It takes two of us to fill Bill's shoes. Those are large shoes. They are. It's we got to put one foot in front of the other on this one, Mike. I'm kind of thinking of this episode of Week in Review as the calm before the Eras <laughs> Tour True. storm. Of course, uh, Taylor come into town this weekend. Seattle's about to experience an overflowing Lumen Field. Plus, there's a Blue Jays series at T-Mobile Park. It's going to be kind of wild, Mike. Yeah, everybody will probably want to stay off the roads. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Yeah. Traffic will be a nightmare. And Libby, did you see that the Mariners team store is being blasted by players for selling Blue Jays gear? I <laughs> saw that. Okay, to be fair... The team said it was an oversight, that that was gear that was left over from the All-Star game, that they took it down. But still, it's not a great look before a big homestand to be selling the opponent's jerseys. Yeah. Awkward. Exactly. But I'm glad they got that cleared up because J.P. Crawford was not nope. happy. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> so there's a lot going on on Week in Review. Coming up, we'll dig into why the city of Berrien might turn down a million dollars of King County funding for homeless services. And the city of Arlington is about to finally have its pride celebration this weekend, more than a month after it was originally planned. There's been a lot of controversy over how the city has handled protests over the event. And we'll talk about what's going on coming up later in the hour. But first, we have a great panel lined up to talk about all of this. Right, Libby? We do. Joining Mike and me today are freelance health journalist Joanne Silberner. Hey, Joanne. Great to be here. Great to have you always. Queer culture and politics reporter Vivian McCall. Hi, Vivian. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. And Public Hola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett. Erica, always nice to have you on KUOW. It's great to be here. We're also streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook. Search KUOW Public Radio to watch us as well as to listen to us. All right. With all the housekeeping out the way, Libby, what's our top story? Yeah, first up, a ruling this week by a King County Superior Court judge may change the way that Seattle clears tents and encampments on the sidewalks, in parks, or on other public property. King County Superior Court Judge David Keenan ruled against the city in a case brought by two unhoused people who say... They were repeatedly swept without warning. The summary judgment says that the city has been relying on an overly broad definition of obstruction by sometimes removing unhoused people's property without giving notice or offering shelter. And that practice, the judge says, violates the state and federal constitution. Erica, you have been covering this at Publicola. What's going on here and what could it potentially mean for how the city clears encampments going forward? Well, since 2017, the city has had a rule on the books that says it defines a lot of things about removing encampments and sets parameters. But one of the things it says is that an encampment can be removed without any notice, without storing property, without doing any of the things that are ordinarily done if uh, if it's an obstruction or a hazard. And they have defined obstruction very broadly. And so the judge found that the definition in the law itself, not just the practice that the city has used, um, is too broad. And uh, what that means for uh, for the city is that, uh, you know, if this ruling stands and it's not clear yet whether the city will appeal, the uh, the city could have to rewrite the law potentially to change the definition of obstruction to be more narrow. Um, but, you know, in, in practice, what that would mean is ending a lot of the encampment removals that are happening because the huge, you know, I, I don't know if it's a majority, but a huge number of them are these zero notice sweeps as opposed to the ones that they do routinely every week that are, you know, you, you get 72 hours notice, they store some property, there's a little more process that happens. So this could end up being very impactful, but it's unclear yet because the city has not said whether it plans to appeal. So I just looked up how often the no notice sweeps are used versus the regular encampment sweeps that are announced. And Real Change reported on this in 2022. They got the city's data and 
the city in 2022 conducted 943 sweeps, and the vast majority were classified as obstruction sweeps. So over 700 of them were classified as obstruction sweeps, meaning that the staff did not have to provide all of that notice and the offers of services that you mentioned there. Um, I'm curious, Erica, I know Mayor Harrell has made it uh, a big uh point of his administration when it came in that you would see more of a visible effort to get the offers of uh, housing in, but also get those encampments off of public property. How do you think that this judgment potentially affects his overall policy goals? Well, I mean, I think um, his policy goal and and what he's actually done is primarily to remove encampments. To be clear, there are not um, there have not been you know a mass uh, you know increase in the number of shelter beds. Certainly not housing. So I think this you know if that is part of the goal, this is going to potentially really impede it. I mean, I've reported on some of these uh, sweeps that have happened in the past, and you know sometimes an obstruction will literally be a tent that's down a muddy path in the middle of a forest. Mm. It's anything, I mean, on public land. So anything in, you know, at the middle of Discovery Park is currently considered an obstruction, even if it's not obstructing anything. Even though nobody is walking there on a regular basis, it's not in the middle of a path or anything like that. Yeah. And and so this could, you know, more narrowly define it so that they can only remove encampments that are like blocking sidewalks or actually impeding people's, you know, ability to use public spaces, you know, in the middle of a ball field, that sort of thing. Yeah. So um, so I think it would have a huge impact if uh, if they end up having to change their policy. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by how to redefine obstruction and how to more narrowly define it. Um, Joanne, you uh, sent some notes about the idea of the use of public space balanced with the rights of folks who are sleeping on the street and, and in uh, sidewalks and public parks. How do you think about encampment removals and how to balance those things? Well, I really like the Ninth Circuit ruling. And the concern is, you know, will it stand and will it be enforced and will, will it will it change anything? I mean, it makes a lot of sense if if it's obstructing, you know, you, we all know what obstruction is. You know, we're walking down a path or we're... Um, you know, it's, it's right in our faces. And we know what that is. And if that's gone, I sort of hope and think that the people of Seattle would be pretty comfortable. You know, if somebody's off in the woods and, and not, you know, not in their faces and, and not scaring their kids or, what you know, whatever they're worried about without a physical obstruction, I think that people will be much more comfortable. And I think it'll give us some breathing room. But really, the question gets down to, will the ruling make a difference? Will it hold? Yeah. And we want to talk about that ruling, Joanne. You mentioned the Ninth Circuit ruling. You're referring to the Martin v. Boise ruling. I I just want to put a pin in that one second, because that kind of is an overarching theme that we have to deal with when we're talking about homeless uh, encampment removals. Uh, Really quickly, Vivian, though, first, Mm -hmm. I know you looked at the effects of sweeps for encampment removals from a medical perspective and I'm curious what did you find when you when you looked at that issue yeah there was a study that came out in uh, the journal of the American Medical Association pretty recently that found when you move folks there is a higher chance that they may die because I think all we're really accomplishing when we sweep an encampment is that we are often pushing somebody a couple blocks away and they're losing all their stuff and they're losing what little foothold they currently have. And when you do that to people again and again and again, the data shows that, you know, there's a higher chance that these people may not survive homelessness. And I think that that's a really unacceptable thing. And I think as Seattleites, we have to ask if that's something that we want to do to our neighbors, because people who live in our community, whether they are inside or outside, are still our neighbors. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a huge moral concern. Yeah. I am you know, going to return again to that Ninth Circuit ruling that uh, Joanne uh, previewed there. The Martin v. Boise ru- ruling that came down a few years ago and uh, the Supreme Court did not take it up, so it stands, um, held that it is unconstitutional to enforce anti-camping ordinances if you do not offer sufficient shelter, not just enough beds by pure numbers, but appropriate and accessible shelter to people who are sleeping on the street. And I'm really surprised that we don't see more legal challenges on the basis of this ruling, because no major city that I know of has enough appropriate shelter that is accessible to everybody, and yet most major cities do uh, conduct sweeps. 
Erica, this ruling by the King County judge this week, it did talk about the Martin um, Ninth Circuit ruling, right? How does it relate here? Yeah, the ruling says that, you know, citing Martin um, and a lot of other uh, different case law says that um, the one reason the obstruction removals constitute what is called cruel punishment under the state constitution is because they criminalize being unsheltered in circumstances where people aren't obstructions and don't have anywhere to go. Um, I think that to to your question about why hasn't it been challenged more, uh, you know, I'm a little surprised by that, too. I think it has been very broadly interpreted by a lot of cities, including Seattle, which says, you know, this is we're offering you, you know, accessible shelter, even if it's something that requires you, you know, in the in this actual case, for example, the shelter that they were offered was all shelter that would have required them to split up as a married couple. Um, One of the plaintiffs in the case and his wife. And so, you know, that is considered appropriate and accessible shelter by the city of Seattle. And, and there are lots of instances like that. You know, you here's a shelter bed all the way across town that you can schlep to with all your stuff. So, um, And you can't take your husband or you can't take your wife. Or your pet. Or, or you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and in yeah. some cases, there are accessible shelters and they are places that people end up going. But there are reasons that people don't go to shelters. It's not just that they are obstinate or don't want help. Yeah. And Erica, this judgment, um, it's not the last word in this case, right? What's next? Well, I spoke to the ACLU this morning and they said um, that, you know, it's going to depend on whether the city appeals. The city has not said whether it will appeal. Um, Seems likely to me. But, um, you know, there will then be a period where the obstruction removals can continue to go on. They're continuing to go on right now. There was one right outside my office on Wednesday that I saw happening in Occidental Park. So um, for now, the, the removals continue. But uh, but that could change just kind of depending on the appeal and what the outcome of uh, of any appeal is. Let's put a pin in this discussion because Mike Davis is going to tell us about a related story that's unfolding in Burien, just down the way from Seattle. What's up, Mike? Yeah, doesn't feel like we're really putting a pin in this, Libby, but... Just continuing it. <laughs> just yeah. continuing it. So after a three-hour meeting Monday night, Burien City Council decided to move forward on drafting an encampment ban modeled after Bellevue's that criminalizes living in the city unsheltered. It seems like more and more of Seattle's surrounding cities are heading in this direction. Erica, you covered this council meeting in Burien. Can you tell us what's going on? Yeah, um, Burien has been discussing what to do with a group of unsheltered people who have been sort of swept from place to place to place. Uh, they were in front of City Hall. They were moved. They moved actually to a nearby parking or a nearby open lot that was then um, rented to a local organization for use as a quote unquote dog park. I've heard that it's not really being used for that purpose. And so now they're just scattered throughout the city and, you know, in, in various encampments. So Burien has essentially decided again and again um, not to take the help that's being offered from King County. They've offered a million dollars and 35 pallet shelters that could hold up to 70 people. Um, and instead, uh, they are moving forward on a, a, a total ban on camping in the city of Burien, um, again, to be consistent with, with Martin, the case we were just talking about. So what that means is that they can sweep people if this if they if this passes to uh, as long as there is shelter available. And that includes most likely shelter in Seattle. Um, They're also talking about these sober living programs that are run by some Christian churches in the area. So um, so that's that's coming. And it also includes because it's modeled after Bellevue's, it would include a provision that says if they do any voluntary, quote unquote, activities that make it inappropriate for them to be at the shelter that's offered, like using drugs, uh, which is a symptom of addiction, and exhibiting behavioral health problems uh, that make it hard for them to sleep in a congregate shelter, for example, um, that's considered refusing shelter. So they can be criminalized for that. Um, Erica, I don't want to pick on you here. So Joanne (laughs) or Vivian, feel free to jump in. But I mean, King County offered Burien a million dollars. Why would they turn that down and go this other direction? Well, I think that there's a lot of... um, So to to be clear, Burien is a seven-member council, and there's a four-member majority that keeps voting for this against, for these things, against a three-member minority that very vehemently disagrees. And, um, you know, I think that there is a bit of magical thinking going on that if they pass this law and if they refuse this money, the, uh, you know, the the homeless people that are living in Burien, which is a matter of dozens, not hundreds... Um, like in Seattle, where we have thousands, you know, they think that they'll just kind of go away, perhaps to Seattle, perhaps to somewhere else. But, you know, they have said there's no shelter in Burien. We can't take these people. They're not from here, they claim, although that is um, 
pretty clearly not true, according to people who've been, you know, working with them over the years. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of uh, it's a bit of a mystery. I mean, it's free money. It's land. It's, uh, you know, I mean, one other thing that they, they say is that, you know, we don't know what will happen in a year when this money uh, goes away. But I think that's, you know, I mean, you could say that about any budget decision. So I don't think that's very credible. Joanne, you have thoughts? Yeah. And aren't they thinking that these are all people from Seattle anyway, and therefore not their responsibility? Yeah. So um, they, they, they are sort of some people are claiming that. But as I said, the um, there's a lot of people who've been working with them in Burien for many years and know these folks. So I think that's not that's not very credible either. There may be some that are, you know, quote unquote, from Seattle, but I don't know why you would leave Seattle to go to a random small town outside Seattle that doesn't have any services. Right. Vivian. And the land in question is a lot where there are cars right now, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. That it's is overflow parking for our extremely ironic. That is very American. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I really hate the euphemistic phrase of a camping ban. I know that's what all these municipalities are calling it, but like, I know what camping is, and it certainly isn't that. It's not a state of being. It's not something that you are constantly doing and living in. It's it's an event. It's something you do. And I think we're seeing this trend in cities because they're they're criminalizing this condition instead of solving it. And I think they, you know, you said magical thinking. It's an extremely complex issue. There are often uh, individual cases that need different treatment. Uh, you, it is going to be disruptive to how cities are normally run or how they want to run their cities. And you know, when you have city council members that are kind of suggesting that's appropriate, it shows sort of an empathy gap, and also the assumption that people who are homeless in your community are not part of your community is is a little odd. And I think the words really have to be used carefully, and it it, it may be too late, but, you know, your point about the camping ban, well, camping, hey, you know, camping sounds fun, you know, it's, it's not camping. And sweeps, you know, going back to the previous conversation, calling this sweeps. Well, you know, sweeping's good. We're cleaning up. And I think it's an unfortunate word to use for something that's a lot more, you know, that's a lot different from coming in and improving a place. I mean, I think, you know, Bruce Harrell would would agree with you for a different reason, which Uh. is that, you know, sweeps is uh, sort of a, a negative term. That, you know, makes it sound like we're sweeping people from place to place, which we are. And he um, prefers, well, actually, I don't know what term he prefers, but he has said we don't sweep, we treat and we house. And that is not true. He is adamant on saying we don't sweep. You are listening to Week in Review. We are here with freelance health journalist Joanne Silburner, queer culture and politics reporter Vivian McCall, and Publicola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett. We'll be back in just a minute. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. Welcome back to Week in Review. I'm Mike Davis, filling in for Bill Radke, along with Libby Dykeman. And we're joined by freelance health journalist Joanne Silburner, queer culture and politics reporter Vivian McCall, and Publicola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett. On Tuesday, after the revelation that SPD officers kept a mock tombstone of Demarius Butts, who was killed by officers, in the break room at the East Precinct, Chief Adrian Diaz acknowledged that his department caused mistrust and trauma in the community. Chief Diaz, who did not apologize to the Butts family, said the department is committed to making it right, and the Office of Police Accountability has launched an investigation into the incident. Joanne, you bring up the fact that the inquest into the shooting of Butts couldn't determine who shot first, Butts or the officers. However, SPD officers did kill Butts and then put a mock tombstone in their break room. So, How can the department build trust within the community when they appear to be mocking a person killed by their officers? Well, I want to start by expressing my sympathy to Butts' mother. I mean, she suffered the worst tragedy that can happen 
to a parent, and, and my heart goes out to her, and what happened was terrible, and this has made it, if possible, more terrible for her. It, there's no excusing, uh, uh, you know, making light or putting in a tombstone, you know, m- making this into a, into a joke. There's absolutely no excuse from that. But I think it, at the same time, and that that's actually period paragraph done, but to add to that, I, I think in the discussion of this, it would really help to have an understanding of what actually happened. And I'm not sure we know. I mean, the inquest said it wasn't clear who fired first. And I think, you know, we may need to have a discussion about 19-year-olds having guns, you know, if, if that's what, you know, if, if he fired first. If the police fired first, you know, then we're thinking, we're realizing yet again that, you know, we have a problem with police who are, you know, a little trigger happy when it comes to people who they want to get for whatever reason. So I want to know the whole story, and I, I don't feel like I do. I would, I would wonder whether or not who shot first would really matter in the idea of whether or not the police mocked someone who their department oh, killed and absolutely. how the community would take that. Yeah, um, And absolutely. related to that, Erica, Chief Diaz has been on record claiming that the culture of this office has changed. But how can we believe that the culture has shifted when stories like this continue to surface? Yeah, I mean, and I would I would just say regarding the inquest, an inquest is a really limited process. It only determines, you know, they ask a series of questions and the only answers can be yes, no or unknown. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that you're going to get an answer. I do think that police are trained to de-escalate and um, and for whatever reason did not de-escalate in this in this case. And they I believe all four of them shot uh, Demarius Butts. So. Um, but we'll never know exactly what happened. Um, the culture of the police department clearly has not changed. And, um, and I think that, you know, every time Diaz is asked about this, because another incident comes up, he says, well, we've got this before the badge program that's supposed to make people, you know, more sensitive police, uh, because they're meeting with people from the community before they go to the academy. Um, I, you know, I don't think we know anything about the efficacy of, you know, this this one program, but you have the same people in the department and the same people that are captains and sergeants and setting the culture and creating the culture that have been there all along. I mean, Diaz actually, um, I thought this was very odd. He made the point that, well, we've lost a lot of police officers. So that means that, you know, a lot of those bad apples are not there anymore, probably. I mean, you know, it didn't the say anything bad specific. Apple theory. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, I, I, I don't think – and the police department, of course, is, is – uh, you know, sort of trying to wind down the consent decree and doesn't want to, uh, you know, seem like they, uh, they they want to seem as though they've changed. But I haven't really seen any evidence except Diaz constantly saying that he's pretty sure they have. Yeah. And again, despite the details of the case with butts, who shot first, who did not shoot first, it, it just doesn't feel that we will build trust in the community if officers are mocking someone that was killed by the department, no matter what the particulars are. Vivian, what do you think of the department's justification that the tombstone was temporarily on the shelf before officers threw it away? I got to say that I don't like it very much at all (laughs) because it doesn't sound like a very believable explanation because how many people passed that tombstone? How many people laughed at it? How many people didn't make note of it whatsoever. I think it really does reflect the culture somewhat if that can just sit there on a shelf. Of course, we don't know how long it was there. And exactly. how did it get there? Exactly. There, there's there's an assumption that maybe it was taken from some kind of demonstration. I think the department offered that it might have been left outside the East Precinct. And I also want to push back on the, the bad apple theory is obviously not a very good theory. But if we're going to directly apply that metaphor, if I were buying apples from someone... And I kept getting sick because I was eating these apples. At what point do I go to the apple seller and I say, I think that there's something wrong with your apples. Do you think that it's every individual <laughs> individual apple's fault? No, it's not. It's revealing of a culture that is allowing those things to continuously happen. And yeah, it's just so disrespectful and upsetting. And I think, you know, people should question why it was there and why the department doesn't seem to want to get to the bottom of it. And the Trump sign. You know, there was yeah. a... That, that, there was, that was there too. Yeah, in violation of yeah, department uh, policy, as I yeah, understand. And it. I should say that it, it was a big sign. It was hard to miss. 
that you know promoting uh, former President Trump in, in a place where it's explicitly said you know no political statements like that. Well, as and as I reported, I mean about that about that shelf, um, Demarius Butts's mother you know, said that one of the things that is most offensive about it, um, or maybe not most offensive, but from the video, you can clearly see that it's right above a microwave. And she said, it's, you know, I want to know why officers were microwaving their food underneath a mock tombstone of my son. I want to know how long it was there. I want to know how it got there. I want answers. And SPD has not provided any. And I, and, you know, this would only, this would not have come to light, most likely, Except that the video was made available as part of the uh, as part of discovery in an unrelated lawsuit, mm-hmm. and reported by the Seattle Times and KUOW and others. So, um, I think we wouldn't know about this if that hadn't happened. That's a, a very interesting point, and I'm actually going to turn to Libby because when we're talking about the image of the tombstone, and as Erica mentioned, it was discovered while reviewing body cam footage for an entirely different case. Yeah. You recently spoke with an attorney about reviewing body cam footage and how it's impacting their office. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned? Yeah, I spoke to the head of the public defender's office in Yakima in eastern Washington, and they talked about just the fact of the volume of body cam footage that their office has to review now. I mean, if you think about this officer who captured this image of the tombstone is standing up to respond to an arrest of this group of protesters who were um, writing political statements in chalk and charcoal and their attorney sued and said that they were, you know, violating First Amendment rights and things like that. So, you know, this came to light because the attorneys for those graffiti artists were reviewing just piles and piles of discovery evidence, which included all this body cam footage. Well, the uh, public defender's office in Yakima is saying we have an attorney shortage. We have particularly a public defender shortage. And while all of this evidence is fantastic, it is also so time consuming to go through and so important to get right. So important to take the time and care to look at because look at the kind of thing that you can discover in the course of this evidence review. However, um, he says his office is completely overwhelmed and he knows that there's evidence that's going undiscovered, un, un, um, you know, brought to light because of just the pure volume uh, of material that they're looking at and they really need more attorneys, more funding. Thank you, Libby. Before we move on, I just want to ask one more question. We're having this conversation. We're talking about the culture of the department. Vivian, I want to ask you, Chief Diaz never apologized to the family as he talked about culture and trust. Do you think that he should have issued a formal apology? I think that he should have. Um, I think if you're going to acknowledge that there's something wrong with the tombstone being there in the first place, you should acknowledge the harm that it's also causing the family. Maybe he apologized personally off camera. I have no way of knowing that. But I think that Letting people know that he thinks an apology is warranted is is an important thing, especially if you want to build trust with the community and want to build, build accountability with the community. Thanks. There's no real there's no real way that we can wrap this topic, and I'm sure coverage will continue, and it'll be discussed right here on future episodes. But for now, I want to go back to Libby, and let's talk about Amazon's carbon footprint. Yeah, there uh, of course are global heat records being broken every day this month and last month. This warming climate is causing escalating disasters around the world. But there was this small slice of optimistic news from Amazon. It reported a slight dip in its carbon footprint for 2022. And this was the first time that that emissions number has shrunk since it began releasing the data. The company emitted 71.3 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent in 2022. And that's according to its latest sustainability report. Amazon started this climate pledge back in 2019. You may have heard of the arena. And that set the goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2040. 390 companies are now participating. So good job, Amazon. (laughs) This was a 0.4% drop in emissions. It does feel a little bit like breaking even to me. Um, Vivian, what do you make of this announcement from the retail and cloud computing giant? Oh, I I feel like a big rain cloud, to be honest with you. You know, like public scrutiny is a really good thing. But I really question if there is a world that we can even exist in where there are major companies that are in this sort of endless pursuit of growth and capital how is that in any way compatible with a more sustainable planet, especially when Amazon's main byproduct, byproduct might be like packaging waste? That's a big thing. I mean, 
I don't know if there's any way around that. So I know that's sort of bleak, but it is how I feel. I mean, have you looked at the news and the temperatures lately? I mean, everything's bleak. It's quite hot, <laughs> yes. Vivian, you're not bringing the bleakness. You're just pointing out that's the, the obvious. That's true. Um, Erica, you dug a little deeper into the numbers that Amazon is reporting. What did you notice? Well, I noticed that emissions rose 40% between 2019 and 2021. Ouch. So when you're talking about oh. a 0.4% decrease, it is on top of uh, very much, uh, you know, numbers that where the chart goes straight up and to the right. So yeah. um, and and the stuff that they did, you know, allegedly to to, to accomplish this decrease, um, we're just, you know, it's like producing we're, we're going to purchase uh, renewable energy to 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 run our data centers and Offsets. you know it's yeah it's this um it's this very you know piddly little stuff when like and i would say in addition to packaging i mean they have this enormous fleet we're used to getting stuff within the same day you know if i order headphones right now they might be there when i get home you know courtesy of a you know giant van and of course they're saying that they're rolling out this giant new electric fleet of Rivian trucks um, that's going to somehow, you know, offset that impact of, you know, constantly having vehicles on the road. And, of course, we know that electric batteries are not exactly um, climate friendly. They are, you know, worsening inequity across the world. So um, I think that, you know, saying, oh, you know, we're not we're not doing you know, carbon-based fuels anymore, we're doing lithium mining, is not really an improvement. <laughs> Although it might feel to, like that to us, the United States, because we're not being impacted directly by all, yeah. these, uh, all these lithium mines. Great point. Joanne? Yeah, there was one more thing they did. They uh, incentivized some of their employees to ride bicycles to work. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. That's great. A big round of slow claps. That's great. Joanne, you did um, kind of dig into like the idea of net zero carbon yeah. and whether that's a meaningful goal as a measurement for progress on climate. What do you think? It's not really because it would really, you know, net zero means if for what they're emitting, they're managing to get other carbon sucked up. And the sucking up of carbon is, uh, you know, sometimes it can be things like, Oh, you know, paying somebody to not cut down a forest when they weren't going to cut it down anyway. So what is that money, you know, to preserve that forest when, you know, that's not going to cut our emissions enough. The goal really needs to be no carbon emissions. And I want to give some points to Amazon. They brought this up as a topic of discussion. They've opened it up so that we can criticize them, which is more than some other companies are doing, uh, you know, on a personal level with packaging. I do notice that they are trying to get things in fewer packages when I order stuff or they, um, uh, you know, they'll, they'll send it all at one time. It's a start. Is and it at a- the scale of Amazon, every little thing, right, when you have those, like, slight adjustments where, okay, you can choose all the packages, all your packages to come at once instead, like, you, you do multiply that by all the billions of people who use it, and it, and it's it will start. move the needle slightly. Right. But it's – you're – so I'm just trying to be fair to Amazon yeah, here, everybody. No, I, I think we, you know, they, they're they opening it up for discussion. I would have liked to have seen more details on how they were counting, you know, the negative carbon parts of it. I would have liked to have seen the numbers. I would really like to see the government step in, and I don't say that all that often, but come, coming up with standards and how do you, how do you measure yeah. carbon reductions? Because it's uh, it's uh, it can be sleight of hand, and I don't know whether the, what happened in this case. Yeah, and I don't want to give Amazon too much credit because this carbon this uh, you know climate pledge came in response to massive protests by workers who were understandably, you know, upset about all the climate um, impacts that you talked about at the top of the segment mm-hmm. yeah. um, and wanted Amazon to do something. And, you know, this shows that they're doing um, very, very little. It's coming right. from the bottom up is what But is what let's get points yeah. to the workers. Yeah. And Amazon, yeah. as we all know, famously treats its workers very well. Yeah. And listens to its workers. Yes. Um, So I do want to, like, pivot briefly because I do want to talk about, like, the way our consumer choices uh, affect the climate and how much the true cost of our choices are, are hitting home for us because the gas price issue has been on our minds for many weeks now. Washington having the highest gas prices in the country. Part of that has been caused by our new cap and invest program. There's also been maintenance on the Olympia pipeline, other things going on. Um, and oil companies are passing along the costs to offset their emissions to the consumers at the pump. So Washington drivers are really feeling these price hikes, and they're not happy. They're talking about it. But I 
just come back to the idea that what does it take to bear the true cost of fossil fuels? And are we finally starting to see it, this reality kind of crashing down on us? Shouldn't we have expected this? Isn't this the real cost of our lifestyle, Joanne? The increase in gas prices? Yeah. yeah well, yeah, and it, it was the goal. It, of course, it's going to increase the prices. They're going to – anything we do to the oil companies is going to be sent back to us in higher prices. Uh, and I think that it is good for peop- for us to be looking at higher prices. I bought an elect- – I have an electric car, so I suppose, uh, you know, it doesn't affect me as much. But the one group that I do worry about in this – or very low-income people who can't uh, – electric cars are expensive. Yeah. They can't afford the electric car. They absolutely – you know, they live somewhere where there's no mass transit. And uh, this is having a big effect on them. I'd love to see some way to protect the, – at, at the same time, I'm happy to see those high gas prices. I'm worried about people for whom it's a bigger proportion of their income than for most other yeah, people. Yeah, and that way it's a regressive – tax yeah. on people. Vivian, what do you think about this? I think so many stories about these gas prices will talk about the influence of like environmental legislation and how that might be costing you more at the pump. And then the last line of these stories is about, oh, you know, the oil companies, they're making like $200 billion profits a year. Yeah. I kind of think that's more of the first line in the story. And we should really redirect and think, okay, why are these companies who are charging us so much more for this basic resource that, like it or not, we are reliant on at this current point in time, how are they able to make so much money? And how much of this is excuseflation? Like there is inflation all over. People are expecting prices to go up, and this is the opportunity to raise those prices. Mm-hmm. I talked to an oil industry expert who said, yeah, um, that could be part of this. Erica, really quick before we go, what do you think about the political component of this, how Governor Inslee is handling it? Well, I think Governor Inslee should have been honest with the public about this because the proponents of this uh, of this particular you know cap-and-trade law certainly were. They said it's going to make gas more expensive. I mean, I think, too, I mean, making gas more expensive is a very effective disincentive for people who can choose to drive um, or not drive to uh, to choose, you know, either to bundle trips, to not take trips or to take transit. So, I mean, there is a direct correlation, again, for people who have that ability between, you know, a more expensive thing and consuming less of the thing. And in this case, it's gas and it's, you know, and it's actually, you know, going to have an impact, I think, um, in a way that a lot of other sort of subtle encouragements don't. Yeah, but messaging out front would have probably helped a little bit for people to be bracing for this. Um, that's Erica Barnett, publisher and co-founder of Publicola. Also with us is Stranger staff writer Vivian McCall and freelance health journalist Joanne Silberner. This is Week in Review. Mike Davis and Libby Dankman here hosting for Bill Radke. We're going to be right back on KUOW. Hey, everybody. It's Weekend Review. I'm Libby Dankman. Mike Davis is here with me. We are in for Bill Radke today. And our panelists are freelance health journalist Joanne Silberner, stranger staff writer Vivian McCall and Publicola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett. And hey, I don't have to tell you that Pride celebrations are usually in June, but don't put away your rainbow bucket hat or Jojo Siwa merch just yet. There's a local LGBTQ plus Pride event that's been delayed and is just finally happening this Saturday. Pride organizers in Arlington say the city put up a bunch of unexpected hurdles this year that forced them to push back the celebration. Arlington, for those who are new to town, it's a little north of Marysville off I-5. It's at the start of Highway 30. Beautiful area. Vivian, what has been going on in Arlington? So a lot and for a few months. And I want to preface this by saying this entire debacle is over four hours in a public park. That That is the length of this event. It is taking up a quarter of a public park in Arlington, Washington. And back in April, there were these uh, Facebook comments that appeared from this account that it's really not clear whether it's a real person or not, who was commenting on all these city accounts saying, hey, are you going to uh, be vetting the drag queens this year? Because last year, 
there were two or three that were on the sex offender registry, which is just totally untrue. Completely like made up. Completely made up. There's Ugh. nothing to validate that claim. And it really plays into the whole groomer mythology, which is this far right conspiracy theory that like LGBTQ education and art and just mere presence is this daylight cover for pedophilia and the sexual exploitation of children. And it's really at the core of so many of these anti-gay and anti-trans laws across the country. And the local officials in Arlington didn't really pick up on how it's a little bit of a trope, and it spooked them. They brought it into a meeting with organizers and said, hey, would you consider, you know, nixing this drag story time? Uh, There are kind of concerns in the community and then repeated that you know we heard there were these two or three drag queens that ended up being on the sex offender registry they also levied fees on arlington washington and say said you have to pay thirty five hundred dollars for security because of the potential risks that are associated with your event which was totally different than the previous year absolutely that was you know if there was a fee it was much smaller much more manageable yeah right so arlington pride comes out with this and the city eventually relents. They drop the fees. And that really isn't the end of the story because they were also asking the city to enforce this 250-foot uh, open carry buffer zone of firearms and other weapons around their event, which is a pretty reasonable thing. Like in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, for example, last year we saw, you know, the Proud Boys show up and to, to you know, allegedly cause a riot. And it, it is a legitimate concern that people might come with violent intentions to pride events. It it happens all over the country. And the city kind of fired back with this really terse letter where they're like, "Uh, this isn't a, you know, a permanent demonstration and we don't have the staff to cover this. And really, we're just not going to enforce this law because there's really no evidence that there were threats. Meanwhile, the city council meetings were extremely loud. There were people from extremist groups that were coming from out of town to comment on the drag queens who were going to allegedly, you know, sexually exploitate children. There were flyers that went around town that suggested that they weren't even legal. So what actually ended up happening is that last Friday, there was a letter that came from the attorney general's office where they asked the city, hey, could you please clarify what is happening here? Why are you not enforcing this law? And that meeting did take place. The city confirmed with me this morning that they did have that meeting, but they won't say whether they're going to enforce the law or not. They just won't say whether or not people can open carry at the event? That that seems unnecessarily vague and potentially problematic. I think that you could certainly make that argument. And I think that a lot of organizers and people who want to go to this festival feel kind of nervous because there has been a lot of negative attention. There's been extremist groups that include Moms for Liberty that um, has been going all around the country trying to ban queer books, trying to ban books that talk about race, trying to take queer people out of schools and public life. It is uh, extremely concerning. Um, it's, it's an extremely concerning element that has come into the town, which previously, I mean, if you look at these city council meetings, they, they're kind of low key before this is happening. You know, people are yeah. complaining about like the stop sign, like what's been going on with the stop sign for a few years or like a buggy uh, pond. Yeah. I usual mean, small city usual stuff. Usual small city stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it has become this this huge issue where there was none last year. Erica, what do you make of, again, a small city like Arlington that had a Pride celebration last year, pretty low-key where, you know, there were some protesters, but the event was not charged exorbitant fees. It went off without too many problems. Now this year, it's just become this focal point for people. And we do not know if many of these people online, especially are from Arlington, um, it's become a focal point for members of the local Moms for Liberty chapter chapter to tee off. I mean, what does it say about the playbook for anti-LGBTQ plus activism and legislation across the country, what you're seeing play out in Arlington? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just an example of the playbook. And, you know, and I would say that, you know, what's what's especially kind of alarming, but not surprising is that there are local commentators 
um, from Seattle and around Seattle who are encouraging this kind of behavior, you know, on Twitter. And these are people in our own communities um, who, uh, you know, I will not name, but um, but this is, you know, this is part of a playbook. And the goal is to sow fear and it's to silence. And, um, and you know, obviously with the, uh, with the event being delayed, that has partly come true. Um, the silencing and the sort of squashing of, you know, of an entire community in, you know, in this little town is being played out across the country. I mean, I, you know, on a on a di- slightly different issue, um, you know, I, I covered uh, the um, Seattle Public Library's decision to host Kirk Cameron, which they said they had to do because yeah. of free speech. Um, I understand that argument completely. But um, when you have a, uh, you know, a very, very vocal large group of people coming in to an event that's not for them, um, celebrating a community that they are not part of, um, you know, it can have the effect of of silencing and scaring people out of visibility. And that is the point. I mean, I think that the point is, you know, to to make people go back in the closet, to deny that trans people exist, and to essentially just, you know, make it impossible for people to be themselves in public. And um, And I think that's the goal. Yeah. Joanne, we have to move because uh, the clock is ticking down here. But anything you want to add here in the last minute or so when we're talking about this issue, what's happening in Arlington and the um, anti-LGBTQ pushes across the country? It, just as uh, somebody looking in on it, it just astounds me that, that there's so many other problems or so many threat, real threats to our society, to vulnerable people in our society, that there's a group of people out there that think that this is a real threat and that they need to get active on it. I, I just don't understand it. Yeah, I just can't begin to understand it. It's kind of a breathtaking amount of misinformation and conspiracy-minded talk online that's, I think, brainwashed a lot of people into thinking um, that they have to do something. And it's, it's, it's sad to see, honestly. Um, Mike, we have a really quick segment we want to get to here before we end the show. Uh, Mike Davis co-hosting with me today uh, for Bill Radke. Yes, Vivian. You're currently working on a story on gender affirming care. Um, I'm hearing that it's going to be surprising. Most people think of Washington as a very liberal state and you've done some research. Can you tell us a little bit about this story you're working on? Yeah, totally. So I've been looking into, you know, if you want certain types of gender affirming care in Washington, how do you actually go about it? Can I offer a practical resource for people to do that? And um, I've dealt with insurance for a long time. I know a lot about insurance. I've fought insurance companies. I thought that I would be able to do it kind of easy breezy. But it ended up taking so much more effort, so many conversations and talks with experts to find out how to navigate this really complex uh, series of steps to actually get care. And while the state, like we have protective laws you know, you could be on a health plan, for example, that's self-funded by your your employer and therefore the state has no ability to regulate that plan. So what you actually have to do is make an appeal directly to your employer about why they should make the exception for you uh, or and using basically like ACA non-discrimination protections. Maybe you have to go to legal aid. Maybe you have to take your insurer to court um, just because a state has books or has laws on the book that say, you know, these things are available to people. It doesn't mean that they're either accessible or easy to get or even like possible for some people. There's just so many barriers and red tape. And uh, it, it'd be kind of funny if it were not so unfunny. Do you have an ETA on when this story will be released? Next week. Next week? Okay. We will be on the lookout for that. Any journalist loves asking, when's the story coming <laughs> yeah, out? I mean, when is the story yeah. coming yeah, we out, get Vivian? The peak, but we want <laughs> yeah. the goods. Oh, I'm having so much fun. Yeah, yeah. We, we need the goods, Vivian. Okay. We had a lot of heavy topics today, but the truth is, you know, summer's here. There's a lot of stuff to do, especially this weekend where it is going to be probably one big traffic jam but i am curious what is out there that's making all of you smile joanne i heard you have two things that are I, making well, you smile. I had, I had one thing and i was all ready with it and then something happened today the first thing is uh we moved into a house that happens to have eight apple trees in the backyard and i didn't know what to expect i had one apple tree before and, and it was pretty well behaved but we have one now that is it's self-pruning it's it's said okay you know i'm producing uh, so many apples i'm going to give you some 
And in fact, I brought some for everybody. I have them. Oh, <laughs> <in a bowl laughs> thank oh, you. Appreciate that. They Can haven't you? been washed yet, that but here they are. But then <laughs> this you. morning, um, my dog was playing with her best friend, uh, Elmer, who's going to be two next week. And it's just to, to see two dogs just so happy. It's just so you think. And, you know, part of it is they don't know about any of those things we've been talking about today. But the other part is that they just have that capacity. And I think it's something we should all work on. Yeah. They live in the moment. Next time we see you, we want apple pie. Just putting that, just putting that out there. Wow. Okay. You're making orders? Jeez. I mean, why not? (laughs) While we have the power. Erica, (laughs) what's making you smile? I am so excited for Barbie. Um, <laughs> I um, was not, I, I had Barbies as a kid. I was one of those kids that like decapitated them. Maybe this is every kid actually, you know, like dyed their hair, cut it off, gave them tattoos, you know, whatever, uh, put them into interesting positions. Um, but uh, but, I, but I, I, I think Barbie is like such an interesting topic for a movie and so fraught and like, you know, she's been a pilot. She's been, you know, probably a journalist. Um, and um, just this icon and I'm so excited for the Margot Robbie movie which I hear is really good according to Libby it's really good Erica no spoilers no spoilers at all I went to the SIF screening last night at the Egyptian it was so fun I gotta say Greta Gerwig surprised me with what she could do with branded content I'll just say that because there is definitely this overarching thing that Mattel was involved in the movie but she really went pretty far in dissecting what Barbie means to women especially and to female body image so I fully endorse also the Kens the two main Kens Simu Liu and Ryan Gosling have amazing chemistry and sparks really fly is it kid friendly it's uh, I oh let me think about that depends on the age <laughs> 10 10 I have a 10 year old uh, let's talk offline Perfect. yeah because I don't want to spoil it for anybody okay. yeah Vivian what's making you smile well I'm really excited because Pikmin is also coming out today so it's Barbie it's Oppenheimer it's Pikmin and if you don't know about Pikmin it's this Nintendo game where you basically control these like little ants and you <laughs> move stuff around and you collect fruit it's a lot of fun it's just like especially because we're talking about all these bummer topics it is so unrelated Real fast, Libby, I'm putting you on the spot. What's making you smile? I mean, Barbie. It's Barbie okay. and it's uh, the Women's World Cup. I've got my OL Reign hat uh, mm-hmm. with me. Eight members of the Reign are playing in the World Cup, which is the most of any uh, women's professional team. So, yeah, go USA. Uh, tonight they start with uh, Vietnam. Yeah. Perfect, what about perfect. you, Mike? We got oh, 15 seconds. The bite of Seattle is back. Alligator on a stick. Libby, take us home. <laughs> <laughs> Weekend review. Thanks for joining us. Joanne Silberner, Vivian McCall, and Erica Barnett. Thank you to Kevin Kniestat, who uh, produced this and did the news, and uh, everybody who helps us get online and on the air every day. We can review. We'll be back next week on KUOW. Go party.